things might sound harsh, but they're only sound harsh if you're not being receptive to it. If you're if you're willing to challenge yourself, and not just your business, if you're willing to open your mind to actually, is there new ways of doing things? Are we doing it the best we can? Has what I've been doing for the last three years in this role been worthwhile or have I just wasted three years? You may genuinely have just wasted three years of your role just by doing what the other person did when you came in to replace them. If you just kept ticking along doing things how they were, you've wasted time. You've wasted that opportunity. Hi, I'm Danny, And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. Today, I'm super excited just because we have Daniel Barnes here on the show today. And if you've ever seen Daniel on LinkedIn, if you are in the procurement space, you've probably seen a lot of his posts and you know him by the little emoji with the beard, the awesome beard. So Daniel, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I'm super excited to chat with you. Yeah, likewise. I'm excited to chat to you. You you have a very different approach to a lot of people in the space in a good way. You talk a lot of no nonsense sort of approach to things, which I like. That's awesome. I like that about you too. I think it might be like, you know, the the British in you, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's go with that. <laughs> yeah. So Daniel, he's an independent commercial procurement and supply chain consultant, and he specializes in driving cost savings and adding value. But the most important thing is that he also hosts a World of Procurement podcast, which is super exciting because, you know, we're both podcasters. And he's also creating a website called worldofprocurement.co.uk, where he's actually producing a lot of great content on procurement. So definitely check that space out. So Daniel, maybe we can start with um, just telling us a little bit more about why you decided to start your business in procurement. Like what made you be attracted to procurement if you were attracted to it at all? (laughs) Yeah, good question. (laughs) If I go like way back real quick, I say way back, like five, six years ago, because I'm pretty fresh in this space still. I was looking at getting into law training as a barrister originally. Then I thought that's way too much money because it was going to cost me like 30 grand and I was poor. So 30 grand's a lot of money. Uh, I looked at becoming a solicitor. I didn't really get the good feeling really in terms of the the cultural side of things in, in the legal profession. It's quite stuffy. That's probably like mm-hmm. a, a good word. It's quite old fashioned, traditional, and just really not for me. Like I doubt someone with tattoos and beards is really going to get too far within that that industry, at least how it was <laughs> even five, six, seven years ago. So yeah, I, I saw a good opening within government in the UK to join as a commercial graduate, I think it was. And it was just doing a lot of contract drafting, NDAs, and there was this thing called procurement as well in there. I read up a little bit about what procurement was because it's not something you come across too often because procurement professionals are pretty rubbish at actually <laughs> telling the world what it is they do. Uh, procurement functions are horrendous at acquiring good talent or new talent because they make it sound so incredibly difficult that no one without some sort of supply chain procurement degree MCEPs, whatever qualification can even do it. And it's actually relatively straightforward. So that's just a minor misconception with the the industry. So I ended up doing a lot of procurement, really enjoyed it, loved doing all the legal stuff, the contract drafting, and then getting into the contract management space as well. And then did that for a couple of years and just hated every employer that I ever worked for. And um, 
I think there's just a lot of, it's just a multitude of things. Like people don't want to, in a lot of the employees I was working with as an employee under, they weren't really striving to improve on their business, their processes. They were very content doing things the way they had always been done. And that didn't sit right with me. People like, for example, a line manager of mine didn't even know what I'd been doing for the last six months. And they were meant oh, to be mentoring me. And, and it, like things like that just kept building up no matter where I went. And I started to think it might just be me. Like they've got a problem with me or I'm not doing something right. And I ended up just going out on my own, doing some contracting, ended up then getting into more consultancy work over the last 18, sort of 20 months. And like, obviously, I'm not a chief procurement officer. I'm not a director. I'm not a VP of whatever. And to be honest, that hasn't stopped me whatsoever getting work. Like, I'm regularly in work. I took three months out last summer by choice. And, like, I don't profess to know everything, which I think is very wise. You don't want to profess that you know everything when you've mm-hmm. not been right at the top of the profession. But there's a lot of crap that companies don't want to do, and they don't know how to do it like process changes, writing new contracts, building supply chains from effectively from scratch or that their business has got in such a mess on, say, a direct program of spend that they don't know what to do and they can't find people with enough grit and determination to uh, get them through it. And that's kind of where I just go and slot in and do some good work and then disappear and never go back there. And that's (laughs) That's kind of what I do now. That's an amazing origin story, first of all. Like, I can totally relate to the whole legal profession being kind of boring and old-fashioned. I think it was, I don't know if this is UK, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. I think that people still wear those weird wigs, right? Yeah, so, yeah, funny story. And, like, hopefully we're not going to digress too much here. But when I was at uni, I was uh, part of the mock trial association where we used to go and compete and wear all the wigs and gowns. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude, like, act as though and do all the proper research, get all the case bundles and everything. It was an incredible amount of work. And that's kind of when I got good at public speaking. And before that, I would never talk in front of anyone, let alone do anything like this. Uh, So yeah, Yeah. it was was good. That's great. Like it kind of developed your skills in that way, right? And, you know, I guess you kind of have an affinity for some of those slow moving, more old fashioned career path, you know, like procurement and law. I think um, they both have something in particular that's pretty similar Whereas like they're pretty slow moving and it's pretty slow to change. So why do you think procurement is one of the slowest moving roles for change management? Like what is the thing that keeps people behind? I've been thinking about this and I think on it a little bit. And it's really hard not to come across as ageist in the response that Mm -hmm. I'm going to give. But I think it's the most straightforward and honest answer that I can give here. When I've been in businesses and like I know there's plenty of businesses around the world that have got this right. But there are many that haven't. There are many that still do very manual things around procurement, whether it's manual purchase orders or their data management is crap or they just don't have any idea what's going on with their contracts. And all of this can be partially automated, partially put in cloud storage, processes and workflows can be built via software technology now. And when I look at the leadership, the leadership teams, not necessarily just the chief procurement officer, not necessarily a director of commercial VP or whatever the title is, when I look at their core team, so their senior leaders, their senior procurement managers, their senior commercial managers, there's something about them that they they struggle with the most basics of technology as it is within the business. I've seen procurement managers, senior procurement managers, senior commercial managers who can't even set up an Outlook invitation properly. And when you're at that stage, 
there's no way you are ever going to grasp the technology that's out there in this space. And I also think on the flip side, it's not just that. I think sometimes businesses don't see the value in it. They don't see the need to do it if things have always worked the way they are. And maybe they just can't really see the benefits that they're going to get, whether that's immediate benefits or long-term benefits. I, I think there's a whole piece around that. And on the flip side, I don't think necessarily that all the companies out there that have solutions that can enable change, they, I don't think they necessarily do a good job of showing what that change can be, which is why it's good Procure if I do this podcast and allow you to host it. Yeah, 100%. I don't want to come off as ages either, but it seems like um, a lot of people in procurement are a little bit older. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's hard for them to kind of attract younger talent. These are normally people that will come in and kind of question things and ask yourself, you know, what are you actually trying to do here? Why are we not making these changes? So there's an aspect there where it's kind of hard to get these younger people interested in procurement because the way that they explain it, it's so dry. It's so boring. And it's not like something that people will normally be interested in. Yeah, I agree massively with that. I don't tell many people this, but at one point I almost left this whole profession completely. Mm -hmm. I was scrambling to find anything else because I just couldn't find anywhere. And that's partly why I went out of uh, and started fending for myself, let's, let's call it, and actually started to enjoy it a bit more. It's just because you know, people do make this dry and it is interesting. It is exciting. You, you cover so much. A procurement professional, if we just focus on procurement, they're not just people who purchase. They manage contracts. They work with finance. They project manage, program manage. They build up expertise. It's really hard to find that in any other role. You could say project management, program management, they might kind of overlap a little bit, but you just don't see it. Like when I was at uni fairs, like grad fairs, where all the prospective employers are showing off their grad schemes, there's no one there singing the praises of, oh, we've got this awesome procurement graduate scheme or the supply chain scheme where you can come and do all this wonderful stuff meet all these people, talk with all these suppliers, spend a ton of money, which you're never going to spend unless you become a millionaire. So it's a cool profession, but I think a lot of people do a, a horrendous job of just marketing the profession, let alone themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about procurement horror stories because people always love these and it kind of allows them to really see the profession for what it is and the value that it brings. So I don't know who has the worst story. So maybe you can start off with one and then I'll tell oh, you one I know. Jeez. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I actually wrote a few down. I have to be really careful with what I say because some of these might be quite fresh and I've signed <laughs> enough NDAs, official secret acts, and all sorts of other Fair wonderful enough. things to stop me talking about too many. But I'm going to talk about a more recent one. I'll just say it's a more recent one in the last couple of years. And it won't necessarily sound like a true horror, right? There was no catastrophe. But I think it says a lot about the mindset, the influence in businesses around what procurement can actually do. So I was working with a client and they wanted to procure some, let's call it electronic warfare components. Let's keep it like that. They were looking to spend about four, four and a half maybe five million pounds on this. So it was, it was a fair, fairly substantial wow. spend, especially on the direct program. It accounted for a lot of the, the spend. They had a supplier in mind. They'd been using the supplier for about, well, actually, funny story. They hadn't used the supplier ever, but they had been in conversations with one supplier, one supplier only for about five years. I come in and think this is absolutely batshit crazy. Why are you using this one supplier oh when 
the crazy thing is this isn't even the crazy bit. I go and speak to the guys who are going to actually use this and build the product. The guys that know what they're talking about, the technical experts. And typically procurement, supply chain, they don't have always the best of relationships with their internal stakeholders, especially those technical people because they're they're nerds, they're geeks, they're, they like to get everything their way. And they hate people who tell them they can't do what they want to do. So I walk in and I grab a cup of coffee, cup of tea, a few biscuits with the guys. And I say, what's going on here? And they say, the product's shit, but no one will listen to us. No one will listen to us. They're adamant that that product will do it. But we've got modeling on our computer sat here that shows us that it won't work, that it won't give us the power outputs, the frequencies that we need, blah, blah, boring technical stuff. So I had to start battling this because I trust these guys. Like, that's what you have to do when you when you walk in. And I, I go speak with the VP uh, of commercial and contracts and say, these guys are telling me that this is going to be rubbish. This is going to be a disaster. You're going to fail upstream because you're not going to deliver the product to the customer that you need. It just looks yeah. at me blankly, blankly. The whole program team look at me blankly as though I'm crazy. And I go and tell the supplier that they've chosen that we're not going with them. And that we're going to competitively tender procure this. And I'm going to invite them back and see if uh, they can uh, meet the requirements. And we did a proper actual evaluation because none of this had been done. Long story short, though, we got the right products in. Significant savings, 700,000, 900,000 pounds, better products, better quality. But the disaster is the mindset that you can just go to a supplier. This is a big organization that you can just go to a supplier, say we want this. And they say, yeah, we can do this. And you agree to it up front. And that kind of blew my mind that a big organization would ever be in that position and that people wouldn't listen to their technical experts. I had to build a relationship with the technical experts and then fight with the technical experts against the program team. And it was just a funny way. When I look back, it was like really funny. It might not sound really funny, but it's funny to me because <laughs> normally the program teams are the teams you can like have a little bit more companionship with. You can just say, these tech guys, they're talking absolute nonsense. And it was just a complete role reversal. And no one could understand why we needed to say, go out and competitively procure these goods when the item was crap. That is so, crazy. Yeah, that, that's just a weird story. And it's five years too. Yeah, they were talking to for ages. Like they were talking to them when I was still at uni. Like it was probably longer than five years. I have a feeling it was like 10 years or longer that they've been talking to this company, but they never used them. They weren't even an approved supplier. So it was a weird scenario. And everyone in that business was looking at me like I was crazy. I was thinking they're going to get rid of me and I've got no money coming in because I'm a consultant. They don't have to listen to me and they can just get rid of me. But it worked out in the end, okay. But there's instances like that in the world which, you know, as a procurement professional, you will come across where you're in a situation where it makes no sense what the strategy is. And unless you're willing to, I'm not going to say fight those battles, like there was a bit of fighting, but I think influence people and do it in the proper way, showing evidence, data, building all the data sources from the internal teams to show this product doesn't work on a technical perspective. We've done some work with the rest of the market, got five other suppliers who can do this. And we think we're going to have you know, circa 500 to 2 million pounds in savings, unless you do that work and not just run your mouth, no one's going to listen to you. Yeah, that is actually a really good point. Like I've heard a lot of similar stories, not like to the point where it's so dramatic as in like 5 million pounds of just wasted spend that could happen. But a lot of people saying, you know, I've been trying to push this project through, we're trying to push this spend through, but this person and this person is always blocking me. And 
you know, they're kind of making enemies in that sense where they're not really collaborating on the people that are the stakeholders within the company. They're kind of just saying, I know best because I'm kind of like the procurement person, you know? Yeah. What are the things that kind of work for you as someone who is more of like the third person role in these companies? You know, what are some negotiation tactics that kind of work? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. I think remaining very objective and um, you see it a lot within businesses. People will let emotion get in the way of pretty much every decision, whether it's a, a shitty email that will go out and say, blah, 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 blah. And they just go crazy. <laughs> they go insane. They run off on emails. People don't go and talk to people in person or pick up the phone. They hide behind emails a lot. I think just the whole communication piece and just being very calm, knowing your stuff. Like when I go into businesses, I know tiny bit about that business. I know what their problem is, what they need me to do. I have no idea how that business operates, how that business interacts with one another, how the teams work together. I just don't get, I don't know the culture. So all these things I have to learn within days or weeks. It depends on how long I'm going to be with them, trying to help them. So I think just going in and talking to people, learning what the culture is, not fighting the culture as a, an external sort of third party, because if you go in and fight the culture and the way they do things, you're never going to get anything done. You're only there for a tiny portion of time. You're not there to influence the way in which that business operates. So I think just build up very good relationships very quickly, just by being a normal human being and asking people how they are, what they've been up to, small talk to some extent, and then saying, how can I help you? How can I take some of the, the pressure off of you and do it to a lot of people work really hard, find ways to solve these problems. If you can't find other people that can solve them with you and just repeat that and build up trust, influence, and you'll get stuff done. I think you, that can be applied regardless of whether you're a, an, like an outsider, a consultant, third party with a, within a business or whether you're a, you know, an active procurement manager right now trying to get some sort of project through your business approvals. I love that just from a vendor's end, right? Like a lot of the biggest um, pain points is when they come in and they're like, well, we want to implement Procurify, but my CFO says no, but my founder says no. And now we kind of know who are normally the blockers, right? Because they speak a different language. The CFO doesn't really care about the cycle time of the purchase order. They care about, okay, how much money is this going to save me? How much is it going to cost? The IT person doesn't care about how many purchase orders can this process? They care about, oh, does this integrate with the systems, right? Like speaking their language. And now every time we run through a proposal with the client, we're like, okay, here's the proposal for the CFO. Here's the proposal for the other roles in the company. So it totally works, you know, making sure that you understand where they're coming from. Makes sense. Like, I think that was a good point, like on the IT teams, like I've done a lot of IT projects or hardware projects, components that need software integrated. And if you don't say, oh, like there's an API or something, yeah. <laughs> that means you can integrate this with your network or we've got to use this version of Windows. I know you haven't got any of that version around, but we've managed to buy some laptops with that version on. Like you just make solutions, you talk their language. You don't need to know the language but you need to phrase and frame the information you're given as though they can easily get something from it. So I always think just going very plain English, keep the technical language to a minimum. If you're trying to say something about integrations, maybe don't use APIs, but just say the supplier, the vendor, they've told us that this can integrate with your systems. Here's the information around that and just let them consume it in their own time and then mm -hmm. follow up with them pretty quickly to keep things moving. Totally. I love what you said about the APIs thing. We always get asked that. <laughs> and sometimes we're like, why do you want to integrate with your system? You know, it's a simple question, right? Why do you want this? 
sometimes they actually get stopped in their tracks. They're like, actually, I don't know. It's just common practice. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Providing information, asking questions, like you say, from whichever side of you, whether you're buying or, or selling, is always going to get you answers. Sometimes it takes a way longer time. But if you're not in constant communication, if you don't have those communication lines, that trust, that relationship built up, makes it way harder. Yeah, that's such a good point. You know, you kind of talked about culture a little bit. And I love that because, you know, we named our Spend Culture podcast the name for a reason because like, you know, got the people side and then the process side and then systems, right? So it's all very important to actually be able to make change within an organization. So how can you think procurement leaders can lead their organizations on creating better and healthier spend cultures? How can they be the pioneers in this movement? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where the magic is. I think from a leadership perspective, when I look to a leader, they need to firstly have a clear vision. You find so many people in senior roles that just bumble, fumble along. They don't really know the day-to-day. They're consumed in emails. They don't have a vision. They don't really know the problem areas. And I always find like, like a load of people shy away from this at the moment that procurement has always predominantly been there to save money. And like, mm-hmm. I still think that's like a massive part. And obviously procurement does so much more than just that, but it is a, a big thing. And if you as a procurement leader, do not know where you've got good opportunities for savings, I think you're already showing that you aren't a good leader. So I think you need strong leadership, strong vision, and you need that leader to be able to get the right people on board with that vision and drive it through. Because within organizations, you've got people who want to be there, people who just like the pay, or people who are there for retirement, and Mm -hmm. people who are looking to improve their skills in the short term to jump to somewhere bigger and better for them. And that's a really hard bunch to get working in unison. So you need a really strong strategic vision. I say strategic, you just need a vision that people buy into, not everyone, but those people are are strong enough to push the culture along. And I think that's an area which is going to become more and more important moving forward. Like it looks like we're on the, well, we're probably already technically or not technically, but we will soon technically be in like a global recession. Mm -hmm. Money is going to be hard to come by. Cash flow is going to be hard. Suppliers are likely to start choosing the client rather than the other way around. Like if you're a bad person, a bad buyer um, that's going to really impact on your ability to work within your supply chain so i think there's a lot of other things that are are going to become more prevalent they're already in play but i think they're only going to get stronger and more difficult to navigate and if you don't have a good leadership team that are aware of all these problems have the right people in place to navigate them you're you're done really yeah i totally agree with your point about having a vision i think like a lot of people have expertise but they don't have vision. And that's like a such an important distinction to make, you know, like you might be the smartest person in the room, but if you don't really know what the overall strategy is going to look like, you're not able to actually lead it from either the top down or the bottom up. Because now, you know, people are talking about bottoms up leadership too, where you might have people in the organization that they don't have the expertise with the titles, but they actually know, they see the future of what might happen. And if they can win enough influence, like you mentioned, they can also become visionaries within a company. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point. Like I'm quite, I don't know if it's quite traditional, but I think if your if your team's crap, if your business isn't operating, the first place you look is at the leadership. If the leadership aren't good enough, they're not good enough. If your CEO is rubbish, your business isn't good. If your chief procurement officer is really poor at what they do, and let's be honest, sometimes people get 
in positions like that based on time served over actual experience. I think that's a really good distinction to make. So many, like, I'm going off on a little tangent here. So many jobs will say, you need 10 years experience doing this, or you need 10 years in post. And I get the whole concept because it should show you're smart, but I've spoken to people who've been doing procurement for 30 years and they still don't know how to send a purchase order for a P2P system or they don't know the latest way in which you can competitively procure, evaluate, and get a result. There's loads of people out there that have done a lot of time that uh, don't know what they're doing. I kind of forgotten what you even asked me now because I've gone on such a <laughs> such a tangent. But I'm just going to leave it like that, Danny, because you can you can prompt me if you want. <laughs> it's totally true, though. Like I've never agreed with that myself, especially when you have like a role that looks like it's junior, but then they say, "Oh, you must have ten or fifteen years of experience." Like that's bullshit. You know, people mm-hmm. should be assessing how a person can do the job within um, what they have for the vision or how do they see themselves giving value to that particular role rather than saying, OK, here's all the roles on my resume that I've done before in the past. I think that's like a super antiquated approach. And we could leave that in, you know, the 1980s or something. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think it's, a, it's almost really timely. I've seen a lot of stuff on LinkedIn recently and um, I try to limit how much I go on LinkedIn and just schedule all my posts and hide away from it. Because it's a weird place to be, but a, a wonderful place as well. But I've seen a lot of conversation around people in procurement talking about, are you an actual practitioner? Have you been doing this for 10, 15 years? Or are you someone that's only been doing it for a few years and is putting out advice on how to do stuff? And for me, like I'm like, I say how I do things. Like I always find work. I don't profess to be anything. I'm not. And I always think, are these people who are talking about, yeah, I've done 10, 15 years, are they actually experienced? Even if they've had the title chief procurement officer, did they just get that role because they did the time? I think it's really hard to measure what experience looks like. Um, I think the only way to do it is based off meritocracy, the results you generate, and whether you keep getting work as a consultant or whether you keep potentially getting promoted or your reputation within the sector is known not just by your you and your managers, but by your peers uh, within that company and even outside of it. So I I think it's a really interesting uh, topic to have shed some light on uh, in this podcast because there's a weird little thing at the moment. I don't know if people are just getting a little bit defensive, a little bit uh, cagey because of the way the markets go in and they're just scrapping for whatever's out there. It's a weird thing I just started to see over the last month or so. Totally. I made a similar um, post about it, too, where I've noticed that people have been kind of putting people down, especially the younger people. They're saying, oh, what these people know, you know, they haven't even been in a career for more than five years. And I think Mm. that's also very ageist, right? Even though we have mentioned, okay, yeah, older people might not be good with technology, but that's kind of the truth, right? But when they say that these people are not believable just because they're young, I think that's kind of BS. You know, now we have a lot of great leaders out there who are even younger than me and you mm-hmm. who are doing some great yeah. things, right? And I think it's the attitude. If you see that, there's obviously always something to learn from every single person that you meet. That's actually the infinite mindset, right? Yeah, I can agree more with that. Yeah. You've been great at building your personal brand in the procurement space. And I think a lot of procurement leaders tend to be a little bit more shy. Like they might hide in the shadows, even though they might have a lot of great things to say. So what do you think procurement leaders can start doing to really build a brand? And what are some things that work for you? Yeah, I mean, like first, I think having a personal brand is a really good um, 
like a defense and of offensive mechanism to have mainly because like when when times are good if you've built up a strong personal brand you're potentially going to get opportunities coming your way whether it's private work or new job positions if people start seeing your face everywhere and see that you talk sense or ask interesting questions or give a unique perspective or give any perspective that isn't absolutely ludicrous and you're just doing it to polarize I think you can build up a reputation. Let's, let's use the word reputation because effectively mm-hmm. your personal brand is your reputation. And a, a lot of people, I think, get it twisted. Your reputation goes with you in person and online. It's just one thing. I think a lot of people think you have a personal brand online and that's unique of who you are in like the real world, as you know some people call it, but just the world. So I think that's why it's good on the offensive. And from a defensive perspective, when times get tough, like jobs typically shrink. Uh, mm-hmm. opportunities shrink and I think we're about to enter that that period despite people saying jobs are improving they're improving because they just went so horrendously when all recruitment and everything just stopped so I think it's really good because if people know of you when times are really hard they see that you've maybe said one thing and they've really resonated with it they've got that problem in their business they might just come to you they might not they they might completely ignore you I just think it's um that anyone in their career, whatever stage they are, they're in, like it just makes sense to build some sort of personal brand up that talks of your experience, your expertise, your vision, your thought leadership, which is kind of the same thing. Just because I think it's really going to help you get those, those jobs when times get hard. And I think that's all people need to do. They just need to talk. So LinkedIn is probably the best place to build a personal brand because it's B2B predominantly and you've got all your peers on there. And if they're not on there, I'd say most people are on LinkedIn, right? Like it's, yeah. it's just the, the way of the world now. If you're a professional, you're on LinkedIn. And like senior leadership, I don't see any really senior leaders, chief procurement officers putting out regular content like you've just asked me in this podcast, what are some horror stories? If you're a CPO and you've been doing it for a fair amount of time, you've probably got a fair amount of bad stories or you've got some very good stories. And you, all you need to do is talk to people about those, put a post up and say, one time this happened and we did this <laughs> and it generated this result. And people are going to be like, oh, wow, how did you do that? And that's it. You're just having conversations with people online. You, set, you start the conversation online. You give an example of something you've done or you've seen or an interesting perspective and see what other people do. And you can learn all the little technical bits around hashtags, but LinkedIn's super easy. Just use free hashtags. Just use supply chain procurement, procurement leaders, and you're done for like forever. Like LinkedIn is so unforgiving. It requires no skill really compared to any other platform. You can really get some good reach on there and just go and engage with people. Do it for 15 minutes a day. And you'll build up a personal brand fairly quickly. Like for me, like I've only got like a few thousand followers on LinkedIn. Like I wouldn't even consider that like anything. I see people with way more and the opportunities are crazy on LinkedIn. But also from that perspective, even if you've got like 20,000 followers on LinkedIn, it might not mean that you have a personal brand as your content, what you put out there, your message still has to resonate with people. I sometimes post and it gets one like and there's just tumbleweed and you learn from that. So it depends how serious you want to go and be around building a personal brand. I think it's really good, like I said, from a defensive offensive perspective, depending on what the market in general, the recruitment market, the labor markets are like. And yeah, I just I just don't see the harm in doing it. You're almost building some intellectual property around you that you can then market 
and sell and make money from. Like I, all my work over the last three years has pretty much stemmed from LinkedIn. And I was getting that when I had no influence on there. And I get more and more opportunities now, the more stuff happens. I love that. And, and like, you know, some of these tips are pretty simple, but it's just people don't do them, right? It's like, oh, yeah. what have you learned this week? Maybe share that. Right. And I think um, one thing that kind of stops people from doing that is the fear that people will either judge them or that it's not my place to share what I know, because there's always going to be people who know more. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit where it doesn't really matter where you are in your career. There's always something that you might provide value from a very unique perspective. And I think even if you put something out there and three people see it, that's still really good. You know, maybe those three people will change their perspectives or learn something from your posts. I think that's a really good point. That last point in particular, like how I look at it, if I do multiple content throughout the week, uh, like I I try and commit to one post a day, it's just a consistent habitual way of doing it. If only 10 people saw that and one of those happens to be a chief procurement officer, they've got a problem and my answer kind of gets their brain thinking about how they can solve that problem. That could be a perspective client, perspective employer, perspective relationship, Mm -hmm. and not just for that time it could be a relationship that lasts very long for the rest of your working career or they might you know sort of bank that you are uh, the person who gave them that idea and in five years they might reach out to you and say we've got something here come do something with us and I think you need to look at it from a long-term perspective not just like oh I, I did 20 posts this year and they got 20 likes and I got no work out of it or I got no new companies coming to me offering to make me a CPO or a senior buyer or something like that's just a really bad way to look at really bad mindset and I think you also said that um, people might not agree with you and might not agree with your posts like don't don't worry about that there's people out there that won't agree with you but that's also very good like I put posts out and people disagree with me and I'll disagree with them back or I'll change my view and and not necessarily change my view but I'll understand their perspective and um, actually it might lead to a change of view but I think if you mute people that have a different perspective mute people that can shed some light on your perspectives and help you grow you're you're screwed anyway (laughs) that's amazing Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Um, I think it's the dialogue, right? That makes people learn. If no one's talking, no one learns. (laughs) That's kind of the reality of the situation. We've kind of covered it in terms of when you're at work. Like if people just talk on email, you're going to get a lot of emotion, emotional responses or a lot of assumptions being made around the, the communication. And that can happen on LinkedIn as well. Like unless your communication lines are really good, really clear, if your message is clear and concise or if your message is inspiring or encouraging you're going to get a good amount of responses there uh, from a perspective of creating a personal brand you'll get people that don't agree i think it's sometimes like and we, we, we i'm just kind of laughing to myself sometimes the biggest issues that i come across on linkedin is if i do a post that say says something like it's a belief that i firmly have that buyers in and not, I'm not talking about like retail buyers or those really specialist buyers in like the clothing sector and sourcing materials. Let's say if you're just a standard buyer in a IT company and you buy hardware and that's all you do. Well, you need to get out of that because your job is not safe. No one's going to have those roles soon. They're going to use robotic process automation. They're going to build catalogs if they haven't already. Yeah. And it's just all going to talk and do everything. And you're not needed. You're screwed. You haven't got a job. If I put posts like that, I always get someone saying, but but computers can't do that. AI can't do that. And I just think, 
Yeah, they can. Like literally, uh, did you not watch like that Japanese game? I can't remember what it's called. It's like Go or something where the AI beat the person or the AI beats the person playing chess. Chess is like a, a crazy competitive technical skill to play. And it's way yeah. more complex than something putting an order in somewhere and it just ticking along and sending out a purchase order and then someone accepting the payment and automize it, like making that automatic. So if AI can beat people at chess or the like StarCraft 2, which is a really nerdy PC game that's ultra competitive and really complex, like I just don't get what's going on in the world. Like people are just delusional and under rocks all day. If I do those kind of posts, I always get some sort of <laughs> someone t- telling me that AI or computers can't think better than us, which is obviously not true. Look at Elon Musk's company. They just flew a rocket into Crazy. space, landed it. Like there wasn't a human in there landing that booster back on a moving boat. Like AI did that. A computer program did that. So people just need to wake up a bit. But uh, yeah, you will get those uh, polarizing views on there from sometimes things that seem so obvious to you that they're going to happen and it'll kind of knock you back for 10. Just don't worry about it. Just have a fun conversation and move on. Totally. And you know, like that's pretty funny, right? Where people get defensive about their roles. But I think as, as soon as like this starts becoming more and more mainstream, people will start to realize. And hopefully when they do realize, they start to shift and think about, okay, what are the skills that I need to actually develop to make myself more competitive in this new age? Because, you know, if you don't adapt, then no offense to you, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, you'll right? be on benefits the rest of your life, pretty exactly. much. Or that's pretty savage. Change of but... profession. Yeah, I, I'm, no, yeah. Yeah, I'm a bit too savage sometimes. Yeah, but it, <laughs> I think it's the truth. Like you are, you know, you're responsible for your career. And I think this is another thing that people get caught up on. They 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 go into a job role. They think the employer is responsible for developing them, their skill sets that they need to. Like in the UK, in procurement teams are really big on the Chartered Institute of Procurement Supply SIPs. Like I know there's yeah. like SIG in, in like North America. I don't know, there's a whole bunch of them. And you go in and you get your MSIPs, your chartered status, and that means you're like you're the Don. You're the the top dog now in procurement. But all you've done is sat down and read some books. You haven't actually gone and done the stuff because you spent all your time doing that. And that's where I think people go on. They think they can go into an organization and that organization is going to take care of them, which it does. It gives them training. But you need to put in a lot of effort yourself to learn these new skills. Like when I was a a grad, like I fought for every opportunity. I saw some exciting work. I would go up to whoever had that work and said, I want that work. Or I got to chief procurement officer, which might not be the best move when you're a graduate. But I wanted to make something for my career. I was eager. Mm -hmm. I had good knowledge. And I would just say, I want to do this. I'm bored. Your teams aren't performing well enough. Like we're not doing enough of this stuff. I can do this as well as my day job because I've got loads of capacity. And I think it's just making yourself useful to your team, making yourself useful to your your business, not just relying on the professional qualifications that they might give you, which is great. I get those. Like I, I think they've got some merit to them. You're going to learn a lot of the foundation stuff, but you're responsible for your career at the uh, the end of the day. So make sure you drive your career. And if that organization doesn't work for you, if that organization isn't letting you drive forward with your career, go somewhere else. A hundred percent. I think your post said it best. You know, if this team is not challenging you and if you challenge the team and they don't take your advice, get the hell out. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, and, and I think you also need to be um, receptive that you may be talking absolute shit. Like, you might think you know what you're saying is the best idea. That team might have come across this idea a million times. They might just look at you and say, you're talking absolute nonsense. 
And you also need to be receptive of that feedback. But when you put it into your feedback loop, try and work out, is that good feedback? Or is that feedback just them not wanting to change from protecting their jobs, protecting what they're doing? And like, that's a really hard thing to do. I think it takes a little bit of time, a little bit of pushing boundaries. And I think you should push boundaries. If you're in an organization, you're not pushing boundaries within your role. Like, what are you doing? What are you going to get out of that role? You're literally just getting told what to do by someone else. And you're almost yeah. a bit of a, a robot, a bit of a machine that is soon to be automated by a bigger and better machine. A hundred percent. Honestly, like a lot of the feedback that you're giving, a lot of the advice that you're giving, it, it sounds harsh, but it's really good advice. It wakes people up. So I'm glad that we're talking about this because to be honest, I don't know if the, any of the other <laughs> procurement podcasts are this honest. <laughs> yeah. And I also think like that's the world in which we need to you to operate. Things might sound harsh, but they're only sound harsh if you're not being receptive to it. If you're, if you're willing to challenge yourself and not just your business, if you're willing to open your mind to actually, is there new ways of doing things? Are we doing it the best we can? Has what I've been doing for the last three years in this role been worthwhile or have I just wasted three years? You may genuinely have just wasted three years of your role just by doing what the other person did when you came in to replace them. If you just kept ticking along doing things how they were, you've wasted time. You've wasted that opportunity. 100%. Like, it's just the truth. And like, you look at any business leaders, they're constantly pushing boundaries. And like, that's just the way to do it. You don't have to be a business leader to push boundaries. You don't have to own a company. You can just be in your role, pushing boundaries within that, that role, whether you're a buyer, an admin person within the procurement function, analyst, like just try stuff. I love that. We can end it off with something a little bit more fun. We always ask this to all of our guests because Sometimes they get like shocked because they can't think of anything. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about your most embarrassing moment. And this could be within your career or in your personal life. Yeah, I'm going to stick to a career one here just to keep things safe. OK, uh, I'm glad you uh, forewarned me of this conversation because I would have been just I had, would have had no idea what to say because I try and avoid <laughs> embarrassment as much as possible. But when I was a grad and I, I, I was doing, we had a commercial conference within our, our function. There's like 110 commercial practitioners. And when I say commercial practitioners, it's commercial contract managers, uh, procurement people, so the whole side of it, like they, everyone does everything. And um, I had to give some sort of presentation on, I can't even remember the topic now. I just remember it had something to do with, this was a really good way of saving money and it, I think it was a case example that me and this other grad, we'd gone off and done this this project together. We'd saved some money and they wanted us to feed it back because we were new and pushing boundaries. And um, I think the whole premise of our conversation was the more money you're spending, the more complex it can get. So we did like the biggie smalls, more money, more problems. And we like oh, nice. put it on this giant projected screen of like biggie smalls face. And I think we even had the background music playing and no one in the room knew who he was or what, what the reference was. And this is a really good point because that was a very traditional environment. And when I did that and I stood in front of all these people, I knew I was getting out of there as soon as oh a better opportunity came along. And that's what I did because I knew the cultural piece of that organization was so straight and narrow. It was so... Oh, like 
I mean, I almost feel bad to say it's almost so traditionally white as well uh, (laughs) because it was so lacking of different perspectives, different cultures. I was like, it just was a massive eye-opener. So I learned a lot from it, but that that was probably like one of the most embarrassing and eye-opening moments of uh, my career so far. Yeah. That's amazing. If you did that for Curify, I swear to God, we would all just laugh. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. same probably. Amazing. it was really bizarre. Um, and I was, yeah, massively shocked. I think a couple of people knew what it was and they smiled, but the rest of the room, they were just, they were blank, gauntless oh, faces man. in there. It was horrendous. Yeah. That's painful. Honestly, like, I'm glad you got out of there, man. And that's a, such a good, like, you know, litmus test, right? Hey, do you understand the humor or not? If not, then, you know, maybe it's not a culture fit. <laughs> yeah. And just seeing just in general, like throwing different cultural perspectives out in the workplace. Like I know we're like right at the end, but I think it's like a really prominent conversation to have. And like we, we don't need to have this conversation right now. It's just like my sort of last point in that like so many workplaces are so undiversified, so mm-hmm. uncultural, like they just people are just so trapped in their own ways very traditional very white traditional i find especially in procurement like i don't really see too much it like in the uk everywhere i've been it's like a a room full of white people who are a set age have always done stuff and i think if you're if your workplace is like that you're not going to get all those different perspectives in it and that's kind of what that told me with that organization at the time and that was good enough for me to get out of there probably just a few months after it maybe six months later Yeah, I love that you mentioned that, you know, as like a Asian woman who is in a career that it's mostly dominated by white men. And I do talk to a lot of white men. I don't think they kind of understand that because they're in it, right? You don't really understand Mm -hmm. your position of privilege if you're already living it. And that's something that the audience kind of needs to know. And I know it makes some people feel uncomfortable, especially with the current situation that's happening. But I think it's a reality that you need to kind of settle in with yourself with and really reflect on how you can really change the status quo and how can you really bring all these new and different perspectives in the organization that you're in so i'm really glad that you mentioned that daniel like i'm very happy to hear (laughs) no thanks for having me on it's been a good fun and i probably just like ruined my reputation somewhat of being even more savage so maybe i'll just need to up my savageness on LinkedIn uh, with my uh, content more regularly just to, to even it out so people don't get too shocked when they hear me talk Honestly, this is what we need. You know, silence. I've always believed that it's like a deadly weapon. If you don't stand for something, you don't stand for anything. So I think it's important that, you know, you get your voice out there. And I think this is really the true you where you're having all these great perspectives. You're coming from it from an honest perspective, but you really want it to make it so that it positively affects people. It's not like you're trying to put people down, right? Yeah, definitely. That's the worst. That's exactly. the worst. Like, we, like, we, we said that, like always bring people up around you. Like that's why like I was so cool to, like so happy to jump on this podcast. I've jumped on another podcast, my own podcast platform. I will advertise going to listen to other people's podcasts in this space because why not bring other people out with you? We're all doing the same thing, right? We're all trying to learn and, you know, educate others too. That's it. But yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been good fun. Thank you so much, Daniel, for um, all of the great conversations, all of the laughs and, you know, some of the crazy moments. Hope you have a great rest of your week. You too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like this series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. 
ProcureFly allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about ProcureFly at www.procureFly.com.